Hello, I'm Father Joe Roche of the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Thank you for joining us as we continue our journey of reading The Mystical Temple of God by St. Stanislaus of Jesus and Mary Papchinsky from beginning to end. Today we take up from where we left off, beginning with Chapter 6, Part 2, pages 594 through 596. Chapter 6, The Victim in the Mystical Temple, Part 2. Indeed, it is at times dangerous to reveal oneself, especially to many who do not fear God or are afflicted by envy or some hidden mental distress. And yet I would not oppose revealing oneself, which is not only useful, but also necessary. Yet it should be done to the kind of persons to whom is granted discernment of spirits, who not only know what comes forth from God, but are also willing to help those who are being led along such a way. Let the Virgin Teresa, never praised enough, be an example. And yet, what different opinions even learned and devout men entertained about her heroic, daring deeds and seraphic spirit. Some believed her to be deluded, others obsessed, others mad. Very few approved her undertaking, and only after it obtained good results. Of course, from results, all easily discern good things from evil things. But before results, only a very few are either able or dare to affirm something in a matter, unless they have received this gift in a singular manner from God. A simple soul, trusting in God, humble, attending to nothing except to what pleases God, will not stray on this path. We call the written rule of the divine will that which has been laid down for us in its evangelical precepts, counsels, and teachings, in the laws and instructions, and in statutes and rites, and in the universally accepted customs of the Church, and then in civil laws that are in accord with justice and not in opposition to religion, to spiritual integrity and dignity. I add the rules of religious orders and various societies and others of the same kind, especially those approved by the authority of the Most Holy Apostolic See. Whoever submits his will to these out of love of God, not only admitting them, but also fulfilling them, he should truly be considered dead to himself, but alive for God. But let us come to the type of mortification of the will by which one voluntarily submits oneself to the will, command, desire, and direction of another, deeming that this is the most acceptable sacrifice to God. And in truth, this can in no way be denied. What the Divine Spirit himself expressly asserted in Holy Scripture when he intimated to Saul, through Samuel, obedience is better than a sacrifice. Certainly, as Gregory the Great observes, by means of a sacrifice, somebody else's flesh is slain, but by obedience, one's own will is slain. The heavenly teacher himself recommended such mortification to us, not only in words, but especially by his example. For he said that his food is the fulfillment of the Father's will, and in the Garden of Olives, beginning his very fervent and long prayer, 
Three times it was repeated that he desired wholly to follow and accomplish the will of his eternal Father by drinking the most bitter cup of the Passion. Therefore, I do not think that souls stirred up by such an excellent example need the stimulus of words. If one is not persuaded by the life and teaching of Christ to pursue virtue and holiness, who would persuade him? And so I advise here this one thing alone. It is a most splendid thing, most pleasing to God and advantageous to man, to follow another's will rather than one's own in all things where no evil is apparent, and one who conforms oneself to another's will can never be tricked by an evil spirit, as long as he recognizes that this will is not occupied by the very same spirit which would happen if sin or error were enjoined or imposed or advised. What then shall I say about judgment? That most holy founder of the oratory of Jesus and most enlightened teacher of spiritual matters, Philip Neri, scrutinized the spirit of his followers by their mortification. For when he would see that some readily gave way in an argumentation, even when asserted by good reasons, it is said that he greatly praised them, and he would then apply two fingers to their forehead, saying that in them rested holiness, intimating by this, I believe, the mortification of the will and of judgment. And I do not dare add anything to this. It is a conspicuous and rare virtue to allow oneself to be conquered by another when you have victory at hand. Yet I do not want anyone to be silent when it is necessary to speak or give way when he should prevail, especially if the dangerous opinion or the less probable teaching, or indeed one that is already rejected, is advanced or defended. I personally desire to flee far from such conversations, and I desire always to be absent from them. But if I should be present, my intent is not to withdraw from fighting for the truth and defending it. Finally, you must then mortify and restrain the imagination when less virtuous images flow into it. Indeed, one must attend to this most unbridled horse everywhere, since it is with us everywhere. But if you do not want to restrain it in such a way as to do damage to the brain or head, which I personally do not advise, at least do what is to be done persistently, not giving attention to the insolence of the imagination until it becomes accustomed to make itself subject to reason. The imagination is that Bucephalus, which Alexander alone knew how and was able to handle. Here we need to be Alexanders. St. Stanislaus speaks in this section about spiritual direction and, and confession. At the time that uh, he was ordained, it, not every priest could hear confession. There were specially designated confessors. And he talks about St. Teresa of Avila, who would receive uh, spiritual direction, but she didn't always have good spiritual directors. They weren't able to discern well. It was the same problem that St. Faustina ran into. He writes of religious, uh, following the rule of life, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Lay people are to follow the gospel. 
Married couples are to live their vows faithfully. And then St. Stanislaus begins to speak of obedience, truly denying our own will and doing the will of another. St. Paul speaks of a mutual submission in marriage. We can think of the example of St. Joseph and the Blessed Mother and the Holy Family, giving up things for the sake of the family. And Jesus gives us the example in the Garden of Eden. He didn't want to have to suffer his passion on a human level, but he submitted to his Father's will out of love for us. And St. Stanislaus hopes that the example of Christ's life will inspire us to live in a similar way, to die to our own will and to seek to follow his will. St. Philip Neri recognized virtue in his followers when they humbly accepted the arguments of another even though they had good reasons to back up their arguments. He saw in their humility and their mortifying themselves uh, the beginning of holiness. They didn't want to win at all costs. And St. Stanislaus writes of mortifying and restraining our imagination when less virtuous images flow into it. How important this advice is for us today when we are inundated by the images on social media. Our imagination can become like an unbridled horse ready to gallop away. He uses the example of, Saint, of Alexander the Great, uh, the only one who was able to uh, train his own horse uh, Osiphilus, I think was the name of the horse, uh, to uh, obey him and to follow his commands. So let's pray that we too can uh, be disciplined and uh, be careful of all the images that we allow into our head.